Welcome to Book Talk, produced by the Better Living Institute and sponsored by App Judo for your app software needs, Bullet Pad for building lists on your iPad, and also supported by donations from our listeners, folks like you. We're Kira and Bill Van Itterson, and today's book is As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. This book, Kira, was published in 1902. So in this year, 2014, it's 112 years old. Yeah, hard to believe. (laughs) But it is a classic, and it's a book that actually neither one of us have ever read completely. Parts of it, perhaps, but not completely. So we chose it to read it and report on it today. Exactly. We have about three copies of this book in our library. And yes, I have pulled it out and read portions of it. I had never read it cover to cover which is quite interesting when you come to think of it. But there have been quotes from this book. Periodically, I run across them as I'm reading other New Thought material from more modern writers. So it's quite interesting that people are still giving a lot of credence to his writings. It's interesting that he wrote the things that he wrote so many years ago. have to give him a great deal of credit for having these kinds of thoughts. Well, of course, the main premise, and he takes that verse from the Bible, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So his whole premise is that your thoughts shape your reality. So where have we heard this before? (laughs) It sounds a lot like the law of attraction as we're hearing it so powerfully. Exactly. It's like he knew the secret before the secret, right? (laughs) But as did many writers, it's interesting when you're reading historical works these days. I run across these things and I'm always astonished at how advanced people were and how these messages remain sort of shrouded for so long. It's like they didn't really come out into the mainstream, but they're out there now. They really are. Yeah, this book is really about the fact that man is the master of thought and the molder of character and the maker and shaper of condition, environment, and destiny, to quote him. So, This is really interesting when you think about the fact that it was written so long ago. He knew how we think is what shapes our destiny. Now, one thing that I think makes James Allen different than many of the other authors, all the way from Ralph Waldo Emerson of the 1800s through Wallace Waddles in the early 1900s, and even today, as Kira mentioned, The Secret or... Esther and Jerry bringing forth Abraham and many of the dialogues that take place that also talk very heavily about the law of attraction is that James Allen, through his circumstances, I believe, his early growing up and his early work experiences, he began to center himself in the areas of self-control and self-purification. So over and over and over in this book, We're seeing a lot of messages, I might call them Calvinist reform type messages, not so much Puritan, but certainly strenuous and perhaps judgmental at times in light of making sure that your mind and your thinking and your direction is always in the ultimate purification and subjugation of passions. Right. He wanted us to understand that there's something beyond all of this here in the physical So he really did put a lot of emphasis on reaching that center of the individual that is connected to the divine and sort of staying there, you know, and he felt that that was where we would gain the best and we would live the best life if we did live from that. 
I agree with that. I don't know about you, Bill, but I'm pretty sure you agree with that as well. It's just that we do know that we're here in the physical to experience the physical. Otherwise, you know, why would we even come here? That's always been my viewpoint. But I do think that it does benefit us to do something in which we're connecting with that core center of ourselves. And on a daily basis, certainly, it does increase our ability to draw from the field of potentiality. And I think that that's exactly what he's doing. He's connecting with that when he's doing his own meditations, which for my readings, he did that daily. Each morning, he would go and for about an hour meditate before he started writing for the day. So he was connecting with it, but he does have this stringent moralistic viewpoint of how you should live your life and how you should not partake in any of the bestial things of nature. He does have some very beautiful words. And I'd like to share from the foreword, just a tiny little paragraph here. He says, By virtue of the thoughts which a man chooses and encourages, that mind is the master weaver, both of the inner garment of character and the outer garment of circumstance, and that, as they may hitherto be woven in ignorance and pain, they may now weave in enlightenment and happiness. So he was all about change, too. He was about the fact that you could change at a moment's notice and begin to move your life in a totally new direction. He realized that it would take time, but he also acknowledged that a person that might be living the virtuous life, as he would describe, could decide to change and move, in his view, downwards by letting their thoughts just wander into a lazy way of thinking, as he would call it. And this would be where you would center your thoughts on negative things and on raw passions and on, well, even as he enumerated, drink and activities that the body might engage in that (laughs) were sensual and licentious. He thought that you could go either way and that you could start at any time and therefore move yourself into different circumstances whether it be positive or whether it be negative. Well, in this respect, I think it's certainly true what he says, that we do become students of our own character. We begin to watch how we're behaving, and we begin to monitor our behavior and sort of control and alter our thinking, that we will begin to see the effects of what we are doing. The changes that we're making in our thoughts will begin to show up in our lives. And I think that's absolutely true. His thinking and his dedication seems somewhat rigid and maybe a little bit more labor-intensive than what I'm comfortable with. I kind of like the Abraham viewpoint of just doing what feels right, doing what feels good. That makes it a lot less work. But he did talk about the intentionality. If you just really pay attention and you have patience and you practice and you investigate how your thoughts are affecting things, that eventually you would begin to understand how to develop the life that you actually wanted to achieve. Now, before we leave the impression that it was all spit and vinegar, if you will, (laughs) and, and hard to manage, eventually in the book I came upon the chapter towards the end, I think it was the second from the end, and it's called Visions and Ideals. And in this chapter is where he really gets into the creativity aspect of man, almost to a sense of being envious of people who do produce creative things. And I think he probably felt like his material, 
even though he appreciated it and even though he published it and even though he gathered groups that met at his home every evening to discuss this level of philosophy with him. By reading this chapter, it seemed to me that he appreciated the artists, the composers, the painters, the sculptures, the poets, and appreciated the work that they did and the creations that they wrought. And I think that he felt like this was something that was beyond him, that he wasn't capable of doing it. But he thought, what a wonderful thing to come to the world and how it not only inspired people with higher awareness, but it would definitely help inspire people with lower awareness to let them see what divine creations really were. I think that's true. In fact, he actually said that they were the creators of heaven, these people who had this ability to express themselves through art and music and, well, all of the arts. But he did feel that they had tremendous insight, and he felt, I think, that they were the ones who were connected more closely to the divinity within themselves and that they created heaven for the rest of us. We need to take a break for a moment to thank a sponsor. This segment of our program is sponsored by App Judo, your complete web and mobile application development service. The Japanese word judo means the gentle way. The martial art of judo got this name because it signifies maximum efficiency and mutual welfare and benefit. App Judo follows these same principles in all its software development projects, using the best technologies and computer science principles to serve clients' needs elegantly and intelligently. App Judo prides itself on building attractive and intuitive user interfaces that your customers will easily understand and love to use. Whether you want to design and build a new app or refactor and redesign an existing app, App Judo can help make your project a success. Visit AppJudo today at www.appjudo.com. Now, he recognized that the thought process is what controls our outer circumstances, not the outer circumstances controls us and then subsequently our thoughts. So, again, he was all about change your thoughts, change your life, and that you could have a successful life, you could have a material life, You could have relationships and love in your life, but first you had to create that in your thought, and you had to hold those thoughts, and you had to exercise those thoughts. In fact, one of his quotes is, Blessedness, not material possessions, is the measure of right thought, and wretchedness, not lack of material possessions, is the measure of wrong thought. So he wasn't all about material success. In fact, he didn't enjoy a lot of material success, but he was comfortable. Right. He didn't really live to be that old. He was about 48 when he died. He had married, and he did have quite a profession in writing toward the end of his life. He was writing a journal called The Epic, which people enjoyed. He had quite an audience large enough to sustain his living, in addition to growing his own food and that sort of thing. He had a very simple life. But it sounds like an enjoyable life, one in which he wrote and then, you know, spent time visiting with friends. And he had a wide array of friends and also had a wide awareness of other teachings, too. I don't think he was particularly mired in just perhaps the Calvinistic viewpoint. He also cited a lot of benefits of the Buddhist pathway. So, I mean, he did look at other things and he was not limited in his thought process that way. Much more open than I think many people in his day, let me put it that way. 
there's a quote here. He said, thought allied fearlessly with purpose becomes creative force. He who knows this is ready to become something higher and stronger than a mere bundle of wavering thought and fluctuating sensations. He who does this has become the conscious and intelligent wielder of his mental powers. And he did think that our minds were very powerful. Our thoughts were essentially powerful in conducting our lives and in creating our lives and molding our lives. That's really the formula that we use today, we collectively, I would say. And I think that's the formula of the current Law of Attraction teachings is to build that thought in your mind, to nourish it, and to continue to put force behind it until it's grown to a point where not only does it become your watchword or your guidepost, but it's also your full belief that you actually are recreating a belief which is really all a belief is, is a thought that is manifested over and over and over again until it becomes part of you. Exactly. He said that your vision is what you become. Whatever you envision for yourself by your thinking is what you become. And so I think in his life, he felt that what he wanted to become, I think, was something divine and godlike. That is what he valued. And you can see that that is how he chose to explain all of this, because that's what he chose as being primary in his life. He spent a great deal of time in contemplation about the spiritual concepts. And I'm thinking he probably did really understand that this spirituality was something that came from within, that we had this connection to, that we were this godlike creature that could create and co-create with God. I think he had that awareness, that he knew that. He says, The greatest achievement was at first for a time a dream. The oak sleeps in the acorn. The bird waits in the egg. And in the highest vision of the soul, an awakening angel stirs. Dreams are the seedlings of reality. That's very powerful. And again, that's almost lockstep with the current teachings of Law of Attraction. It's or said in a much more poetic way, and it's said in a maybe older English type way that we're not used to so much today. But certainly you could take those couplets and you could make those an affirmation for your current daily life. And you could certainly begin to build a whole new existence for yourself. I think that's true. I absolutely think that's true. And that's really why we chose this book, because It once again has a message that we feel is so powerful for everyone. I just want to read one more thing that he wrote, and this is how he ended the book. He says, Keep your hand firmly upon the helm of thought. In the bark of your soul reclines the commanding master. He does but sleep. Wake him. Self-control is strength. Right thought is mastery. Calmness is power. Say unto your heart, Peace, be still. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's some powerful words. And the fact that he wrote them so many years ago is a testament to the fact that this is an ongoing premise that is at work in our lives. It's been in the lives of everyone from the very beginning. It's no longer a secret. It's out there. <laughs> 
We're going to take a break here for a moment to thank a sponsor. This segment of our podcast is sponsored by BulletPad, the fun and intuitive app for writing outlines and organizing your thoughts on your iPad. With BulletPad, you can quickly create a hierarchical list of bullet points, giving structure to your great ideas. BulletPad is a great tool for writers and thinkers, featuring a simple but powerful toolbar above the keyboard to help you navigate your text with arrow keys and to change the indent of your bullet points. Use drag and drop to move your bullet points anywhere in the list. Use the zoom in feature to drill down on any section of your list or use zoom out to get the big picture view. BulletPad is available now for free. Just go to the App Store on your iPad and search for bullet pad. Well, he had a very simple life. Kira mentioned that he would meditate in the morning, leaving his home, going to a place right on the English seacoast and meditate for an hour. Then he would come home and he would write for several hours. And in the afternoons, he would go out into his garden and tend his garden until dinner time. supper time for some of you. And I think he took great joy in doing that. He loved his gardening. I think he grew a lot of his own food, which was, again, part of his simple life. He was a publisher. He had a magazine. But I think that part of what colored his world was some of his early experiences growing up. His father was in the textile trade and, unfortunately, was caught up in changes where he lost his position and the family began to suffer economically. And then the dad decided to go to America to seek a new life and then bring the family over as soon as he had established himself. However, unfortunately, he was rolled and murdered in New York within two days of having arrived in America. So that put yeah, a damper. Welcome to America. That put a damper on everything. And unfortunately, at that time, James Allen had to leave whatever schooling he was in and get a job and help take care of the family. So he became a personal secretary to someone at a manufacturing company. He kept this position with different companies for several years until probably in his what late 20s or in his 30s, he became a journalist. Now, this would have exposed him to some of the worst, the seediest underpinnings of English society at the time. So I think that a lot of these early experiences colored his vision and perhaps helped to set his mold to be Puritan or to want to have the ascetic kind of life later in his life. It's kind of like he embraced Buddhism Mm -hmm. on some level, but he was missing the finer, perhaps even the lovelier sides of Buddhism. And he embraced more of the puritanical side. I'm not sure. I know. Well, he had, you know, here's a person who definitely had to pull himself up by his bootstraps and make a living for himself. So it was tough for him. But I think that he managed to do it by having these kinds of principles and working steadfastly toward achieving his dreams. And he did eventually create a life in which he was quite happy. But one thing that I, when I was reading, that I found that I really absolutely did not agree with He was saying, his quote is, suffering is always the effect of wrong thought in some direction. It is an indication that the individual is out of harmony with himself and with the law of his being. I think there's parallels there. I think there are some truth in that. But it doesn't answer the question of all of suffering. 
one of the things that I feel to be true, or I feel strongly about, is that some souls choose to come here to the earth plane, choose to take on a body, and choose to go through what I might consider to be horrific suffering, only to demonstrate to the world at large, or to the society at large, or to their culture that they're born in, that what this culture is doing is not right. As an example, as we've been studying recently or have heard stories and read some stories recently about people that would come to a community and not be the same as some of the other people in that community. For example, a person who is gay might be born into a very unforgiving community and by living his life, by embracing his own particular truth, he would be able to show the prejudice that is on the face of the culture that he's born into. And he would force the people who have to interact with him to choose between their prejudice and their human love, especially for him. I mean, even within a family, perhaps. And of course, that suffering is real. That's my point. I don't see that that suffering is the effect of wrong thought. That's what's so powerful about coming here to help change a culture and change a prejudicial culture. Because you are then taking on this burden, this suffering, and you're doing it for a much higher purpose. I think it's hard to judge what's going on with others because we really don't know what is the underlying purpose of their lives or why they're here or what their mission is. And so, yeah, it is very hard. We should attempt to be as non-judgmental as possible. You know, and I noticed when I was reading this book that he points that out as well. He says that it's very hard to say why one person is successful in life or has achieved high success in, you know, material possessions, while someone else is living a life that seems to be much more of a struggle, that it's very hard to say that one person got ahead because he was a better person. Because within every person, there is good and there is bad. And it's hard to weigh that. And it's hard to understand what is good and what is bad inside of another person's heart. Because we can't get inside their heart to know. And he himself wrote that right into this book. It's interesting to note that the same person who will say all suffering is suffering that is somehow earned would also understand that there is this complexity within each individual. Well, he did feel that suffering was the supreme purification tool, that suffering was designed to burn out all that is useless and impure, that suffering ceases for a person when they are pure or when they become totally pure. This, again, I find to not be true in all situations. Yeah, certainly. And we know the same thing about the Tibetans. We've talked about that extensively, about the injustices that are brought upon these pure, innocent, very highly spiritual individuals. When the Chinese government came in and took over their property and their territory and did all kinds of evil things to them. So did they deserve that? We have to think that possibly they chose that. There is this understanding that nothing can come to you except in accordance with your state of consciousness. So 
We don't always understand what our state of consciousness is beyond this realm, but there is the higher state of consciousness, and from that we choose to come here and experience this world. Well, someone has to be a foil for other individuals to express either their goodness or their darkness. So in this particular case, the Chinese government was expressing their darkness and the world was there to see. So it's something that they're now needing to correct. They're not acting at the present time like they need to correct anything. But time tends to grind forward. Even a single voice has a great deal of power. And James Allen would certainly agree with that. Every single voice has a great deal of power, and it's just a matter of focusing your mind to achieve that. I want to leave the audience with one last quote, and this is a very important one. He said that nature helps every man to the gratification of the thoughts which he most encourages. The opportunities are presented which will most speedily bring to the surface both the good and evil thoughts. Nature actually manifests that which we think and that which we dwell on the most. Thank you for listening today. That's our podcast on As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. And we hope that you'll return to hear many of our other podcasts. You can subscribe to our podcast by going to iTunes Podcasts and look for Book Talk produced by the Better Living Institute. You can also find us on our own website at www.betterlivinginstitute.com, where you can find all of our articles and products. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we hope that you will share it with your friends and family. For the Better Living Institute, this is Kira and Bill Van Ittersom. So long for now, everyone. <music>